Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious God, we thank you once more for your word that draws us to yourself, for your word that speaks your truth to us, for your word that plants itself in us and grows within us and renews our affections and renews our minds and renews our wills that we might become the people that you desire us to be. Evermore plant this word to draw us to yourself and evermore change us that we would be who you desire us to be, a new kind of people who follow you and hear your voice. We ask this all through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Did you hear the theme flowing through all these passages? There's something that ties them all together from Judges to 1 Corinthians to the Gospel of St. Luke. There's an underlying theme guiding the thoughts in these passages, something that the lectionary writers have discovered and even connected to our collect of the day. And that theme is calling, that theme is preservation, that theme is God reaching down to his people and making them his own. It is about God calling people to himself to do his work, to do what he desires them to do. <clears throat> now last week we heard from Jeremiah about his calling to serve the Lord. This week we hear of Gideon. We hear some about Paul and we hear of Jesus there at the lake of, of the Sea of Galilee, the, of Lake Gennesaret as Luke called it today. We hear of Jesus calling Peter and Andrew and James and John. Men that he already knew, calling them to now follow him, to do something new, to enter into the fullness of the calling that he had been preparing them for throughout the early parts of his ministry. And so God calls us to himself. God speaks words of peace to us, as it said in Judges. And through those words of peace, God sends us forth to do his work. And so today we're, I'm drawn to just look at what Gideon said, what happened to Gideon. I've been drawn all week as I've been reading this passage to want to speak about Gideon and look at his story and look at what is happening in Israel and then show the connections that go with Paul and with Jesus and Peter, but to focus in on Gideon because he's one of our great Old Testament saints. It's a story that we have all known, that we hear about throughout our years. We always think of I've got to put out a fleece to figure out if this is the will of the Lord, as we used to say growing up. And so Gideon becomes an example to us of how to respond to God, of how to walk forward in faith after receiving the promises of God. But he also is a lot like Peter when we think about Peter's life, right? We think of Peter stumbling and saying non-intelligent things sometimes, jumping ahead of the curve and saying the best of things, but then immediately being like, oh, oh, oh stumbling again. Gideon does the same thing. If you look at Gideon's story here, he, he isn't sure if this is the Lord calling him. And then when the Lord has given him everything he needs to do and he's beginning to fulfill the Lord's will, he's like, well, well let me put out this fleece and if it's your desire, let it be wet and the ground around it dry. 
he does that and the Lord gives him the sign. Then he's like, well, let me do one more thing, Lord. If I Let me put out the fleece and it be all wet around it and it dry. And the Lord does it. He, he shows doubt constantly in the ministry and the calling that God has given him. And that becomes something for us to look at how God graciously guides his people through their callings, even in the midst of doubt, even in the midst of struggle, even in the midst of sinfulness. He calls his people to himself and sends them forth. And so we'll just begin with a little bit of context of what's happening for Gideon and the people of Israel. The book of Judges is about the continual cycle of the people worshiping Yahweh, them giving in to idolatry, God disciplining his people to bring them back to himself and raising up a judge to defend them and to save them. And then the people turning back to the Lord only for the cycle to just simply start over as the people go back to idolatry, go back to discipline. God calls forth a judge over and over and over again. But one of the things that I never noticed until I was in seminary, in all of my readings, it was never pointed out how judges is just a downward spin, a downward spiral with the judges. At the beginning, you start with a great judge who just simply goes forth, does God's will, and the people turn back to God. But with each judge that comes, there's something more in the text. There's something that trips him up, and each judge is not quite as good as the previous judge. When you get to the end of Gideon's life, do you all remember what he does that kind of demonstrates this downward spiral for the judges? After he's defeated all the enemies of God, and protected the people, they want to make him king. And he's like, no, 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 I, 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 I'm not to be king. The Lord is king. And then he has a golden ephod made, ephod made, which is a shield for divination, a shield for saying that I am the center. I am the one who speaks for God. And so he kind of indirectly makes himself the mouthpiece of God for his people. And that ephod becomes a source of idolatry for the people. And then he has a son, he has lots of sons, but one of his sons he names Abimelech. My father is king. Gideon at the end of his life had a little bit of selfish pride that began coming out in his life. His actions caused the people to, to fall back into the cycle. I don't think he realized what he was doing necessarily. He had been spoken to by God. He had led the people. He had spoken for God as a prophet. But those actions did create the cycle again. And that's where Gideon starts out, is in the midst of that cycle. The people are worshiping idols. The people are not following God. And so God has given his people over to oppression. He has begun disciplining them once more and given them over to the Midianites. And they have overpowered Israel, it says in verse 2 of chapter 6, so badly that the Israelites have gone into the mountains. They've made some dens and expanded some caves. They've made caves all over the mountains livable to be strongholds to protect them against the raiding marauders of the Midianites and the many other Canaanites that were in that area. Because anytime the Israelites planted crops, they would come and steal them. They would come and devour again everything. And Israel was entering into almost a famine at this point. And so the people were finally driven after seven years of this discipline to finally say, Oh God, come and help us. They finally cried out to Midian, or to God, against the Midianites. And here's the beauty, is that God sends relief 
two kinds of relief. One kind, and it's all found in this one prophet that he sends. He sends this prophet who doesn't immediately redeem Israel. Instead, he looks at them and says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. The prophet confronts the people with their sin. The people know that they've done something wrong because they're under oppression, but they're not quite understanding the depths of the sin. And so God sends a prophet who brings relief by speaking the word of God. And he says, you have seen everything. You have heard of my great deeds in the past. You have seen my great deeds in the present. When the people turn from me, I come and save you from your oppressors when you turn back. I've told you not to fear the gods of the Amorites, and yet you turn and worship them. You have not obeyed my voice. The Lord speaks through his prophet to bring conviction to his people that they would repent, that they would see the error, that they would see the sinfulness of their actions. And that brings us to Gideon now. Now Gideon was working. He was threshing. He was threshing corn and wheat, whatever it was, type of grain that he was growing, he was threshing it down inside of a wine press so that the Midianites wouldn't see him working. He was sitting there beating it out, cracking the shells to get the, the kernel out, to get the grain and get rid of the chaff. And the angel of the Lord came and sat before him, sat at the terebinth at Ophrah. And he speaks to Gideon and says, Yahweh is with you. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The angel of the Lord is playing on Gideon's name, which has that sense of might to it that sense of being a mighty man. He plays with his name. He calls him into what he was born to do in this moment. But he starts with a promise. The Lord is with you. And Gideon simply replies, well, please, my Lord, if Yahweh is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Why are we in this condition? Where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. You Did you hear that? He's repeating a lot of the words of the prophet. He has heard this prophet speak against the people and speak to the people of what they have done wrong, and he is feeling that pain. He is feeling that crushing burden of what the people have done, what he has probably even done. As we learn later, his father had an altar to Baal, his father had an altar to one of the idols of the Canaanites. And so he is caught up in this idolatry as well, but he has heard the word of the prophet and is being convicted. And he's confused as if, if the people are turning back to the Lord, then why haven't you done anything? Why has the Lord not come and saved his people? But now the Lord has forsaken us. And in verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, I love that because first it says the angel of the Lord is speaking to him, telling him that Yahweh is with him. But then the writer just makes it clear that this angel of the Lord is God himself. It's not just some generic angel who happens to be a mouthpiece for God, but it is Yahweh himself come down, physically manifested before Gideon. Yahweh is here. 
So how appropriate that Yahweh comes and says, I'm with you, the Lord is with you. Literally, he is there with Gideon in that moment, looking to him, talking to him. And he says, go out in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Here is the call of Gideon to do what God wants him to do. He ultimately wants him to be the leader of the people to save them from the Midianites. Go in this might, go in this promise that I have already spoken to you that I am with you. There is the promise, the foundation for all that Gideon is to do, to know that Yahweh is with him. Yahweh has called him to this great task. And then he even doubles down, do not I send you. Here in this moment, Gideon is confronted with the reality that this angel, this man that he is seeing before him, is in some way Yahweh himself, but he's still confused. His next words I'm not sure about. I struggle with these words. And Gideon said, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. I'm not sure what to make of these words. I'm torn. Sometimes when I read them, I'm, I think he's being humble. He's confessing his position in his family and his tribe and in the greater schema of the organization of Israel that he is just a weak and humble man who can't do anything and his family is the weakest. But then I think about Moses and the Lord going to Moses and saying, you're the one who's going to save Israel. You're going to bring Israel out of Egypt because they're talking about Egypt so much that the Lord has brought them out of Egypt. And I almost feel like he's pulling a Moses here of trying to come up with every excuse in the book to say, don't choose me, choose someone else. Not me, O oh Lord. After all, my clan's the weakest, it's the smallest, my, my clan's the smallest clan, remember, and I'm the least important person in my entire family. I'm of nothing here. I just feel like there's an aspect of which maybe he's trying to get away from the call of God. But I also want to take him at his word that he is just being like, well, what, what's so special about me? I'm, I'm a nobody. I'm just a dude in a wine press hiding from the Midianites right now. I am nothing. And so I'm torn. But nonetheless, God says, I will be with you. Get it through your head, Gideon. The Lord is with you. Yahweh is with you. Yahweh is standing in front of you, and I will be with you. You don't need to worry about anything else. I am with you, Gideon. That is the crux of God's calling to Gideon. I am with you. So go forth and do what I tell you to do. Go forth and do the things that you need to do. And Gideon is mostly convinced at this point. So he's asked this fellow to stay. Be like, wait here. Let me go get a special present. I want to give you a present so that I can see a sign from the Lord and understand exactly what's going on. And so Gideon went and got a special present. He took a young goat and he took an, and made unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. So easy to read over these things and not realize how much food is really being prepared here. He's taking a young goat, quickly slaughtering it, preparing it and cooking it, and then he takes an ephah of flour and makes a bunch of unleavened cakes. An ephah of flour or of wheat of meal is 22 pounds of flour. He took 22 pounds of flour and made a whole bunch of unleavened cakes for this guy. This is the feast that he is creating to honor him, to show forth because this present is intended to be a great, respectable, and honorable gift given to this man who is high and mighty, who is above and beyond him. 
And so he brings all of this out, and the fellow's like, put it on that rock, pour the broth over everything, soak it all down. And so he does. And then he takes his walking staff and taps it, and a fire just comes up out of the rock and consumes everything. Fire consumes everything, demonstrating that this is no ordinary man, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is Yahweh himself standing before Gideon, and he vanishes from his sight. The angel vanishes when the fire consumes the sacrifice, this gifted sacrifice. It's not a sin sacrifice. It's more like a thanksgiving sacrifice to the Lord, a gift sacrifice, a sacrificial <clears throat> gift given to the Lord to become a sign for Gideon. And Gideon realizes this really was Yahweh. I had an inkling, but I wasn't sure. But now I can't avoid the reality that this is Yahweh himself. And I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He is in despair. He is freaking out. He is a fearful and scared of what is about to happen because he knows that the ones who see the Lord face to face who are sinners don't live. The Lord can come forth in his glory and consume those who are not intended to see him. But Yahweh said to him, Peace be with you. Peace be to you. Do not fear. Let go of your fear. Let go of your fearfulness. You shall not die. Underneath that is still that undergirded promise of because I'm with you, because I'm calling you, because I want you to go forth and save the people of Israel. And so Gideon built an altar, a memorial there on that stone and named it the Lord is peace. So he has peace because God spoke peace to him. He has the promise of God because God said, I will be with you. He has the presence of God because of the promise. He has the peace of God because of the words of God. And he has a foundation upon which to stand, upon which to guide the rest of his actions for the rest of his life. Whether he does right or he messes up, he has the foundation of Yahweh telling him, I am with you. Obey my voice. Go forth and do the work I have called you to do. Yahweh accepted his gift, even though it was being given with some doubt mixed in with it, with some uncertainty with some unsureness about what was going on. But yet there is faith, there is recognition and repentance occurring in Gideon's heart, I think, as he says, well, if Yahweh is with us, then why is every all this bad stuff happening? I love the fact that there at the beginning, when the Lord says, I am with you, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon says, well, if the Lord is with us, he changes from the to the first person plural. The first person plural, he embraces the entire people of God because if God is with one of the people of God then God is supposed to be with all the people of God because they are part of his covenant they are part and parcel of his people and by God accepting this sacrificial gift from Gideon God is directly saying I am going to hear your prayers I will receive the sacrifices of Israel if they'll simply turn from their idols and come back to me return to Yahweh with sincere hearts of faith He's ready and willing and able to receive his people when he calls them to himself. He wouldn't call you if he didn't want to receive you. And so he calls Gideon and Gideon brings that sacrificial gift and Yahweh accepts it as a way of telling Gideon, just as I said, the Lord is with you. And you said, well, if the Lord's with all of Israel, then why are these things happening? I accept your gift on behalf of all of Israel. 
that all of Israel can bring me prayers. All of Israel can bring me gifts. All of Israel can bring their sacrifices, and I will receive them when they turn from their idols. Because why would you bring me these things unless you're turning from the idols? And so Gideon is called to Yahweh and empowered and given promises from God. And all of this connects together with what happens in the Gospel of Luke and what happens in 1 Corinthians 15. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is preaching to the people and he takes Peter's boat out to preach to them and they push out and he, Peter, and he tells Peter to, after preaching to throw the net out and Peter pushes back a little bit. But like, well, well, we've already done all this, Lord. But if you want us to, we'll do it. And they catch an incredible amount of fish and Peter, recognizing the fullness and the reality of what's going on, says, get away from me, Lord. Stay away, for I am an unworthy man. I'm a sinful man. Stay away from me. He is fearful for seeing the great sign and the great work of Jesus. And this is the same Simon Peter who already has known Jesus, who went to the wedding at Cana prior to this and saw Jesus turn water into wine, who had Jesus come to his mother-in-law's house and saw Jesus heal her. He's seen Jesus do all kinds of healing acts at this point. He's heard Jesus' words being preached. But Jesus hasn't officially called him to be a disciple yet. And so Peter's still traveling with him some, coming back and doing work, going out and traveling some, coming back and doing work. And here he feels the full weight of Jesus' call and seeing what God is going to do through him. If he can take a lake that has produced no fish for an entire night and in the middle of the day go out and catch such a load that the nets are breaking, the boats are sinking, who is this man in his fullness? And Peter says, depart from me because I'm sinful, O Lord. Peter responds recognizing the glory and the holiness and the righteousness that is in Jesus and says, depart from me. But he hasn't realized that Jesus is standing right there in front of him. When Jesus comes to you, he doesn't leave because you say, get away from me. He stays there with you just as Yahweh stayed with Gideon and stood before him and says, I am with you. I will stay with you. I will stand beside you. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, Peter. I'm going to make you a catcher of men. Your new job, your calling now is shifting from being a a fisherman, one who catches fish and provides food, provides the daily bread and sustenance for these people all around you, you're going to provide a new kind of sustenance for them by catching them, by going out and being a fisherman of people, catching men and bringing them to me and telling them about me, that they will know that I am with them too. And likewise with Paul over in 1 Corinthians, he is the least of the disciples, he says, because he persecuted the church and yet Yahweh called him to himself. Jesus called him into his grace, and Paul has been faithful in that calling and has delivered to the Corinthians the gospel. That of which is first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to all these people. Right there at the crux of it all is that reality that it is Jesus at the center, but not just Jesus, but the things that he has done for us and calling us to himself, that he has died for our sins according to the scriptures, 
to fulfill the scriptures, to bring about the promises given in the scriptures that the people are sinful and something has to be done about that sin and God takes upon himself to do something with that sin. And judges, he confronted the people with the reality that they did not listen to his voice. And it pierced Gideon's heart so much that he's like, but why, is it, why aren't you doing the things that you promised to do in the past if you are really with us, Yahweh? And Yahweh tells him, go forth in your might that I've given you with my promise. Go forth and do what I call you to do because I have forgiven you. I am with you. And for Yahweh to be with him means Yahweh has overlooked his sin. Yahweh has put away his sin. Yahweh has done away with it so that he can be with him. And likewise for Peter, for Paul, Christ has put away their sins so that he can be with them. We can't ever forget that Jesus has died for our sins, which means that we have to recognize our sins. We have to turn from our sins as part of us receiving what Christ has done on our behalf. No matter what your sins are, God is ready and able to forgive them because he put them on Jesus. Even when you find yourself in the midst of these sins, giving into the idolatry, giving into the coveting, the lying and the stealing, the lust and the adulteries, he comes to you. And you might be in that moment ready to be like, Peter, get away from me. Go away. Don't depart from me. Don't come near me. I'm a sinful man. I stink to high heaven with the sin that is upon me. But Jesus doesn't leave. He didn't leave Peter. Instead, he calls you from that life that you've stumbled into back to himself. He calls you and says, I am with you. He doesn't come to judge you for your sin because he's already judged that sin in Christ. He called your sin, sin in Christ himself. He did away with it so that you, he could call you out of it and to himself. That is what Jesus does. That is what the Father does. That's what the Holy Spirit does. God calls you out. He proves that he is ready and willing to forgive because he judged that sin as worthy of death by putting to death his own son. Jesus was put to death for your sin. And Jesus went willingly to that death. He didn't resist it, but received it because he knew the purpose. He understood the purpose. He knew what the outcome would be. And Jesus knew that he himself is God. And thus God was taking sin on himself for your sake, for my sake. And God took our sin to himself so he could stand before you and say, I am with you. God calls you by saying, I am with you. And so he washes you and cleanses you in baptism and says in baptism, I am with you. He calls you to repentance and says, I am with you. He does all of this so that he could call you to that hard work, that trying work of living out the transformation that he gives in baptism, in repentance, in hearing the word, in receiving the supper. On all of these moments, he says, I am with you. And if I am with you, I am changing you. I'm making you mine. I am renewing your heart as you receive the reality of who I am and turn and pray and worship and praise the work that I have done. He sends his prophets to speak of sin, to speak of not obeying his voice, that you might hear those words and turn, and turn from idolatry and greed and selfishness, turn from your self-centeredness and be received into the grace of his call, the compassion of his love. He gives you that gift of that transformation when you're baptized and when you believe. 
So that when you're called, you're called to live out that transformation. To forsake that transformation is to run from God, to run from Jesus, to run from his promises. To not live in the transformation he's given is to abandon God. Though he still says, I am with you and calling you to myself. The people of Israel, when they didn't follow God, they were disciplined. In order to drive them to open their ears to his truth, to open themselves to his call. His discipline is not intended to drive us from him, but to drive us to him. To drive us into the transformation that he accomplished on the cross for each and every one of us. And in that driving to us, he says, I am with you that you might have the strength to receive the grace of my call. My call is for you to come and for you to walk forth in the grace I have given. And so hear that promise right now. I am with you, Jesus says right now. Turn from what has kept you from him and receive his promise that he is with you. Yahweh said, I am with you to Gideon. He said to Peter, I am with you. Do not be afraid. He said to Paul, I am with you. Go forth and proclaim what I have done. And he does the same today. I am with you, he says to you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.